Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to welcome Mark Chung, co-founder and CEO of Verdigris. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. So let's kick this off. Tell us a little bit about your background. So I, I guess I was born and raised in Austin, Texas. I came out here to study undergrad in electrical engineering. I've, I've always had a deep fascination with technology. I did my undergrad and grad school at Stanford and then entered semiconductors for a number of years. Started out with a small startup company that got acquired by AMD, worked there for a number of years. And then in 2000, the former architect of Digital Equipment Corporation's AlphaChip and Steve Jobs got together and formed a small startup company called Palo Alto Semiconductor. I was one of the early engineers there and we built chips for eventually the iPhone and the MacBook and the, all the latest generation of Apple products. After that, I went to another startup company, which eventually became NetLogic Microsystems and grew to be a, a publicly listed company. Eventually, we were acquired by Broadcom in 2011, at which point I started this. Okay. So a lot of startup experience, say as an employee or maybe early employee. And then so your first, so started this and this was, so when did you become a founder then? Was it with Veritagris? Which with Vertigris, that's correct. Yep. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And yeah, let's talk about Vertigris. What products and services does Vertigris offer? Well, today, I think what Vertigris is most known for is we offer an energy intelligence platform as a service. It's a large data hosted service for electrical metering and cloud and monitoring. And we do this for very large Fortune 100 companies that have very big footprints that have, you know, a, large real estate footprints, very expansive scope to carbon emissions or electrical footprint. Okay. So you're targeting fortune. So large companies and tell us what that, that large footprint, it's just their consumption of energy or tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. I think what most people don't know is that their, your building, your built environment, carbon footprint is about 40 to 50% of the energy consumed in the world. And for many of these larger companies that run massive data center operations or robotic logistics facilities, this actually increases significantly as a, spent, a portion of their CO2 footprint. And so because everything's kind of gradually moving towards electricity and there's these imminent reporting requirements, many of these companies are now trying to undertake understanding real-time measurement, monitoring, accurate, you know, APIs and, and, and metrics, if you will. Mm -hmm. and, on their built environments. So say, for example, so data centers or manufacturing facilities, it sounds like these, like you said, big real estate footprints, a lot of energy consumption. So is this to better understand their consumption or try to be more efficient with their consumption and understand their carbon footprint? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of all of the above. I think there's, there's no single use case for data. A lot of times in these, these companies, what is driving the mandate in some cases is just a, an intention by the company to be carbon neutral. They may come out like Amazon might say, you know, we want to be carbon free energy 24 seven by 2030. Well, in order to achieve that goal, they need to start measuring where they are. And then as they make incremental adjustments, they need to be able to track and see very much like a kind of like a financial metrics process. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. You're speaking my language now. So they got to measure, they got to understand their metrics now, if they can understand how they're going to prove it and those incremental changes over time. And so Fortune 100, are, and is this mainly US? Is this global? 
Well, we we are focused primarily on the U.S. I would say pre-pandemic, we've been around for a little bit of time, but pre-pandemic, we had a little bit more of a global presence. We still do have installations kind of all over the world in about 30 countries, but most of our customers are headquartered in the U.S. and have our instrumentation deployed in facilities around the world. Okay. And, and when did you, did you found Veritagress in 2011 then? It's a kind of a fuzzy thing, but probably yeah. 2012 is when I started working on it. Okay. Full- yeah. Okay. So started, so started full-time on Veritagress in 2012. And then where, where are you guys located? We're in Mountain View, California. So okay. form, formerly on the NASA Ames Research Park campus. Um, okay. And then what's your current team size? Today, it's 22. 22? Okay. And anything you want to share around your revenue range or ARR range? <laughs> These are embarrassing metrics, but uh, <laughs> I would say we're still in the single-digit million revenue range. So we're, we're working on getting past that. Okay, single digit million revenue range. Nothing wrong with that at all. It takes takes some time to scale. And then tell us a little bit about your go to market motion. You're you're going after very large organizations. Tell me who who are you trying to find within these Fortune 100 companies? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it's one that has evolved over time. Today, I think there's two main groups that we target within these Fortune 100 companies. One of them is the kind of inspired the, the inspiration for putting a lot of this data together, usually that's the sustainability team. So someone in the sustainability office trying to understand and really get data around their real estate footprint. Those people generally have the collaboration and the influence to push for these kinds of um, programs, but they generally also don't have very large budgets and the budgets are usually part of the operating teams. So usually in the real estate group, there's either a head of facilities operations or engineering or design. Those people are the ones that similarly have a use case and a need for the data. And going back to your earlier question, they want systems that can also do things like capacity planning, reliability, um, energy reduction, if they can you know, target and achieve it. So we're kind of took, looking at these two stakeholders and we sell to both of them. Okay. And when you find the sustainability team or say head of facility operations and you make your pitch, are they like, what's their reaction? Are they like, hey, where have you been? Or, or, or is it like a new concept or, or what's that reaction when, you, when you, you call on them? Yeah. I mean, I think the, 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 the little, I mean, it's varied, but I think some of the reaction is where have you been? You know, like, I think we have been looking for a solution like this for some period of time. Most of the time they've, this market generally has been underserved by the legacy providers. And it's not, I think it's not because legacy providers are not necessarily trying to do the right thing for these customers, but the paradigm that these new problems have emerged really just haven't been there until very recently. So, you know, I think the reaction generally is like, this technology is great. We'd love to have a cloud managed data lake managing all of these energy sensors and doing all this stuff for us. One of the biggest reactions they might say is how stable of a company are you? Because we're putting this in all of our data centers. So. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point that comes up a bit in these conversations because yeah, you're, you're talking to, you know, billion dollar companies and is, is that part, I assume part of their vetting process with vendors is 
learning a little bit more, how long you've been around, what's your, you know, how much cash do you have on your balance sheet? Is that pretty common when you reached out to these companies? Yeah, that's uh, extremely common. I think most of them, I mean, it depends on the kind of products that they're buying. So they look at suppliers with different levels of scrutiny, but when you're looking at mission critical facilities and things that have like no, cannot tolerate risk of failure or any kind of issue like a data center or, you know, one of these automated logistics facilities, you end up with a very um, rigorous vetting process. And so, yeah, balance sheet is very important. Yeah, I guess, yeah, great lesson for startup founders. If that happens to be your target market, these big global companies that, yeah, they're going to, they're going to do a little due diligence on you. And so 2012 founding company, and of course today, you know, I book an airline flight, I can see my carbon footprint, you know, it's almost ubiquitous now, but were you early in this process, you know, in 2012, were people talking carbon footprint? Oh gosh, no, like way, we were way early, way, way early. I think. I know I was inspired by a movie that I, I saw that was produced, I think, by Al Gore. It was called An Inconvenient Truth, and that came out way early. And then I was inspired by that and the birth of my kid to really try to take, take my career in a different direction and work on something meaningful and impactful. But I think probably because I drink a lot of Silicon Valley Kool-Aid, um, we're way ahead of the curve of the market. So... But it is, it's, it's nice to see that there is now this kind of tailwind, it seems like an association between kilowatts and CO2. And I'm, and we're, we are seeing like a massive uptake in the market now for our products. And yeah, tell us a little bit about your journey here, because, you know, I talked to a lot of founders where they found it, you know, a couple years old, you know, year old, you know, but you've been in the game for a while now for a software company. So tell us a little bit about their journey. I'm sure there are a lot of ups and downs, but obviously some staying power there. You know, tell us how did you stay in the game when you're maybe a little bit early to the, to the carbon footprint party? Well, it's eating a lot of ramen is a part of the problem, part of the way to do it. I mean, we had, you know, the fortunate thing was like both the all of the founders, we had like pretty substantial credibility going into the very early part of the life, this life cycle of the company. We had come off of a, you know, the $4 billion acquisition by Broadcom of NetLogic was the largest, you know, public acquisition of a semiconductor company Broadcom ever made. And so there was a little bit of a reputation that we carried into the market that made early fundraising actually pretty, pretty easy, I would say. But the the big challenge was as first-time entrepreneurs, really just, and as technologists, really just spending all of our time building cool product and technology and not realizing that we also need to build a business and a sales and a go-to-market function and a finance function and all these other pieces. That was a really tough lesson. I think we were able to, you know, honestly, I think the way that we got through is just sheer determination and grit, you know, just... When things got really tough in the fundraising, we just didn't give up. We just kept going. When cash started to run really lean, we had to eat ramen and cut our own salaries and, you know, cut down our headcounts. And, you know, I think you asked me how large the company is today. It is not at the largest it's ever been. It's about a third or maybe even a fourth of its largest size. Okay. So you had, it sounds like at one point, maybe, I don't know, you know, 70, 80 employees then? Yes. Okay. Okay. 
Well, that's awesome. I love that because that, you know, that, you know, being around say 10 plus years now and, and seeing those peaks and valleys, but still keeping the entity viable moving forward. Yeah. Like you said, that's sheer determination and grit. So I love that. So tell us in this journey, what about capital raise? Because you recently raised, it looked like 10 million. So have you raised just 10 million to date? Any other capital infusions? No, we've, we've actually raised close to 50 million. That's probably a combination of equity and a little bit of venture debt. We, we raised some money from Silicon Valley Bank at the time that Silicon Valley Bank was still around and well, they're still around, but at a, the previous version of them. And uh, yeah, I think the main thing that we did in this last capital raise is we, we had to do like a, a recap, basically clean up a little bit of the balance sheet. We've had to take a lot of convertible debt and turn it into subordinated shares. And this was, it was a painful negotiation with some of our investors, but I think we, we ultimately came through it, I think with a much cleaner cap table today and well-positioned, I think for the next round. Okay. So I was going to ask about that. So you, you recently raised 10 and it sounds like not just to say, kind of sustain the cash runway, but also, like you said, clean up the balance sheet, clean up the cap table. One reason for that. And also then what about the funds going into the company? Was it to just extend cash runway or, or were you ready at this point to make use of those funds? Yeah, no, I think we're ready to, now to make use of those funds. The biggest goal here is to ramp certain ARR metrics. I think that's probably our largest metric that we have to focus on. And um, each of our systems that we deploy probably generates somewhere like 500 to $600 um, a year in recurring revenues. And we want to take that, you know, we want to kick that up and deploy a lot more of these systems. And I want to back up a second with your business model. Is this a software and hardware play or is it just purely software? No, it's a, it's a hardware and software play. It's uh, we deploy the equipment and the professional services to install the equipment that generates the software recurring revenues. Okay. And do they purchase the hardware? Is that bundled into the software subscription? Generally, our customers purchase the hardware and equipment and, and they own it. So they purchase it, they have that, you have that one-time sale for the hardware and then, and then they have the subscription on, on top of the hardware. Okay. Correct. And, and so a lot of lessons I'm sure learned along the way, anything you'd like to share with founders, you know, who may be facing similar experiences, you know, just that, that long journey, you know, you know, sheer determination to, to make the, the product and the company work. Any lessons during that journey or maybe just with this recent $10 million raise? There's so many. Yeah. Let me think about maybe the biggest lesson I would say is if you think that, I, I guess my, the, my most painful lesson was thinking that just because we can do hardware doesn't mean we should do hardware. I think hardware is an incredibly hard business to do. Um, at the end of the day, it could still be contextually the right answer. And in our case, it was the right answer. but but I would say if there's a way to avoid that, things just move a lot easier, faster, less complex when you don't have to deal with supply chain, hardware, like the cash outlay, the working capital, all of the things that are part of running a hardware business. I think that was probably most painful part of the journey. And, and this is also say kind of a hard question, but you know, during that journey, you know, probably the question comes up, should we just shut down? You know, like, you know, you know, what are those criteria? What do we see where we just say this just probably isn't going to work anymore? You know, so did I, 
I assume you had those points in time where you're just considering that. And and tell us a little bit about that, just kind of your thought process and why you didn't, you know, make the decision just to say, hey, this isn't going to work and we're just going to move on. Well, I think it's a very personal question every founder needs to ask themselves. And it's dependent on the context of what they're looking at. And I think every founder is made of different material. And so my my general, for, for my personal belief, I, I guess I had a deep belief that what, what was purposeful for me and how I wanted to spend my time had very little to do with the company's success or money or any of those things. What I really wanted to do was put my um, intellect, energy, and capabilities into something that would be of noble purpose. And what I thought I could help most in this world was trying to bring this kind of technology to fruition. So for me, it was never uh, a question of whether or not I would give up. In some case, it was, how should I, you know, clean this up? How do I move this away? How do I reform this? You know, I was always thinking about how to re readjust that so that I can make it keep going. And then the other question was like, some someone had framed for me like, wouldn't it be easier just wipe the slate clean and start over again? And I think the answer to that painfully for, for the context of us was no, because as you mentioned, one of the things that I said that I always have to ask is, am I going through a sunk cost fallacy or am I, am I really looking at this objectively? And if I said today, if I have all of what Vertigus has, this legacy of 10 years of operation, plus the credibility of us being around for that period of, of time. And if I were to start again now with none of that and try to go after the customers that we actually have today, which one would we be better off at? It absolutely, hands down, it was like, keep Vertigris. It's the most important mm -hmm. piece of the, the, that is the brand that has the power to get to these conversations. We would not have, you know, we would not be in these conversations with, you know, Google, Amazon, T-Mobile, these guys without like a track record that we have today. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, if you just started over. So I really appreciate that insight because that's such, you know, maybe painful lessons learned over time to share with the community. So appreciate that. So as, you know, at this stage of your business, as you're scaling 10 million, cleaned up the balance sheet, now some funds to continue to grow. Do you have any favorite numbers or metrics that you're focused on to manage your business? Yeah, I mean, I think the one that we've sort of talked a lot about is, you know, ARR, or I guess in some, I think it's contracted ARR, but mm -hmm. we're really trying to, I think that's one of the ones that we've been asked so many times by investors and by people evaluating the, the multiples, the valuation of the company, the way in which we raise money, all of those pieces. So I think that's one of the metrics that if we're going to be very business oriented and financially outcome focused, that's one that I think the business needs to have like at the top. I think it's also one of the harder metrics for us to ramp as a hardware business. One of the other ones that I'm thinking about is really our, our cash, like their, our cash flow. So I think it's, I'm not good with metric number acronyms, but I think it's days sales outstanding, but it's like yeah. how much, how much capital do we have in equipment and how quickly are we cycling that, that capital back? This is a really important for us as a, as a hardware business, because we need to make sure that we're generating enough cash and we're spending on our suppliers, like as close to when we can deploy and generate an invoice from the customer. And I think 
you know, cash is king. So if we can get to that cash flow and we've had to be cash flow positive or break even for some period of time while financing was really quite difficult. We want to keep that mentality of, of cash is king at all times. Okay. So looking at ARR, car, cash flow, and DSO, it is interesting and it's a great point. As a SaaS founder, maybe other founders don't have to look at these things if they don't have that hardware play, but you have inventory, you have cash upfront to, you know, have that inventory manufactured, set somewhere. And so looking at the DSO inventory turnover, so a lot of cash tied up in inventory. So little different issues, you know, versus the normal pure play SaaS company. Yep. And, you know, Mark, appreciate the time. So as we wrap up here, what's coming up next for Veritigress? I mean, I think in the next 18 months, I think we're really trying to ramp across our existing customer base as aggressively as we can. So, you know, we should be expanding our operation. We should be going after a bunch of additional customers. So we're really focused on revenues in the near term. I think some of the things that are exciting down the road are we are partnered with some really interesting companies to build new capabilities. So I mentioned like we're known for this electrical data cloud, but we're now interfacing this cloud with unique grid interactive building components that interoperate with the grid. We're partnering with a company that can provide this back into the wholesale market. So we're creating a virtual power plant enabled model that allows our customers to participate in the wholesale grid. And, you know, we're hiring. So if you well, good, good people. Great. We're we're trying to bring some good people into the company. That's perfect. That's perfect. Love that. And so hiring. So that's a great wrap up here. So if listeners would like to learn more about Vertigress, where should we send them online? It would be vertigress.co. That's V-E-R-D-I-G-R-I-S dot C-O. Okay, perfect. So if you'd like to learn more about Mark and what they're doing at Vertigress, check out vertigress.co.co. And Mark, really appreciate your time today and sharing your experiences. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. Thanks.